good to see you again in this, my little nook of the virtual universe. Last time we started talking about the second layer of the God question, a, a layer we're describing as, as, as moral and aesthetic, or if you will, that dimension of the God question that is filtered through our conscious values. If we find something beautiful or ugly, or if, if something seems just just or unjust to us, that sort of thing will inevitably impact our view of God. If God is, in one way, beauty and justice himself in their perfection, then what do I do when something that the Bible actually calls ugly seems beautiful to me? What do I do if something the Bible calls just strikes me, seems to me, to be unjust? There's a very, very compelling argument, of course, that you should just listen to the Bible, <laughs> and you should, uh, but this does not mean ignoring your own impressions or those seemings, as I've mentioned in, in previous videos. Uh, these are important signals to us and, and, and to you, and if we're going to have an open and honest relationship with God through his word, we must dialogue with that word and with him. We need to ask before God, you know, why does this seem beautiful to me? Am I missing something? Why does the thing, O oh Lord, that you call just seem unjust to me? And, and, you know, maybe the problem is that, you know, we're misunderstanding scripture. Maybe the problem is that, you know, as we said before, maybe the problem is that my own values are screwed up and I'm missing the obviousness of God's own purity and goodness and, and generosity in his way of things. How, and so how do I discern between those? Like, you know, that the distortion is with me or my own impressions or my distortion is in an interpretation of God. It, it will work through that question over the next couple videos. In this particular video, I want to talk about what might be called the, the aesthetic aspect of our conundrum. Basically, that there is sometimes tension between our own instinctive sense of what is beautiful and what is ugly and the claims of scripture or the Christian tradition. In the next video, I'll take up the moral dimension of this layer of the God question, asking why certain parts of scripture may seem unjust to us. After dealing with those things then, or at least suggesting principles for dealing with them, we'll be in a better position to kind of relook at the intellectual arguments or that, that third layer of the God question, as I've been calling it. So in the category of what we might roughly call a, a sort of aesthetic critique of the Christian faith, one could locate all sorts of trends, of course. Uh, it's, it, in some ways, there's an aesthetic aspect of the, of the critique of the Christian faith in someone like Nietzsche. Uh, you know, for Nietzsche, Christianity is, is not just immoral, it's gross, you know, as the kids say these days. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's denial of human nature, and it's, in Nietzsche's judgment, it's valorization of weakness, Christianity's valorization of weakness are to, to him quite repulsive. But the, the aesthetic fault lines and value judgments are rather different in our day than in his. If we were to gauge the, the reaction of traditional, or the, or the, excuse me, the, the reaction to traditional Christian claims based upon a sort of ordinary Western individual's response to uh, traditional Christian teaching, one is more likely to hear in our day a critique framed in mostly psychological terms. So, so Christianity gets in the way of freedom or true self-expression or, or some sort of unhinderedness that is necessary for living the good life. And this is, this is distributed quite thickly through our moral instincts in all sorts of ways, but it is especially the case when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender in our current context. And so, and so that provides a helpful test case for working through any aesthetic hang up we have with Christianity. 
Um, let's take the expectation of monogamy, for instance. The idea that we're supposed to be monogamous, not only on the front side of one's sexual life, but also in a pattern of lifelong faithfulness, is increasingly felt by our, our peers and sometimes even cryptically by ourselves as like, is that really realistic? You know, it, it simply assumed uh, it's simply assumed in our context that a fully living person will have, you know, sowed their wild oats or if one is especially sophisticated, be open to kind of non-traditional practices in the area of sex and gender. Now, in this particular video, I don't want to focus on any particular behavior. Rather, I want to take up something more basic so that we can at least discern the principles by which uh, we might work through something like this, especially in this area. So, so let's take this that one issue we've mentioned, at least, you know, lifelong monogamy, the valorization uh, of a sexual life that ordinarily involves only one partner, basically that, that, that primitive sexual arrangement that we label marriage. <laughs> of course, you know, even this specific focus could be broken up in various ways, but maybe we can just, we can just ask it this way. Can we really trust a God who tells us that our sexuality is meant to find fulfillment within a sacred union and that within that union, it is meant to be exclusive? Is it plausible to claim the goodness and goodwilledness of a God who, acts, who asks that creatures like us stick with just one bedroom? <laughs> and let's be honest with ourselves. Most modern people, not everyone, but most modern people, and especially the younger you get, millennials and Generation Zers and such, find themselves asking sometimes, like, really, God, like creatures like us, one person, that's all... It seems a little stingy to some people, you know, maybe God gave us a bigger appetite than a feast, if you will. <laughs> and obviously we need to interrogate those feelings, but it, but it's also obvious when our, when our brain quiets down a bit that we ourselves sometimes have those feelings that ask those questions. So there's a few things to observe at the get-go. We need, for instance, to ask ourselves whether our vision of the good as it pertains to human sexuality is actually as normal and instinctual and natural as it seems to us. One thing that we can glean from history is that the human relationship to sexuality, and especially to sexuality as an identity, is actually not changeless. The, if we might put it this way, the, the place that sex or certain sexual arrangements hold in our imagination does bear some continuity across time. Sex has always been an enormously powerful force in history, for instance, but there's also quite a bit of discontinuity. Uh, in our case, you have to realize that we live in an era of things like the pill. Uh, and this is not, when I say this, I'm not just invoking a conservative Christian talking point. This is a fact of reality that is universally recognized. Uh, so, you know, Richard Dawkins has this line that uh, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. I, I mean, that's not actually true, but we'll leave Richard alone for a moment and just steal the formula. <laughs> the pill made it possible on some historian's calculus to be a morally fulfilled hedonist. Uh, and my point here is not at all to get into the birth control debate. Ra rather, I'm, I'm just making the simple point that, that the technological separation of sexuality from its ordinary consequences suspended a whole dimension of reality against which historical sexual norms have classically made sense. 
And at the very same time as that kind of one deep separation of our just ordinary experience of sexuality was made, a vision of sexuality has sort of colonized the Western imagination uh, within that separation, in that gap that we've created. And none of us are immune to this. This is not the kind of thing I'm talking about isn't an enemy that you can fight just by sort of getting your ideas straight. Uh, our appetites are daily formed on a precognitive lizard brain level to think of the good of sexuality a certain way. And so we are we are we as modern persons are so comprehensively inundated with images and associations that form deep and strong connections in our consciousness that we are highly likely to conflate our malformation with what is actually natural and ordinary. And here I'm not just talking about things like pornography, that might be what you're thinking here, but, but when you actually learn how it works, I'm really talking about things like the sexualization and all of advertisement, or even the seemingly innocent media that our children consume. And this is not to mention the, the nature of our, our love stories, you know, sort of the normalization of hookup culture in American sitcoms and that sort of thing. Of course, the sex lives of sitcoms are no more realistic on the ground than those characters' apparent joblessness and a seeming availability for shenanigans at a moment's notice. In any case, the point, the point here is, is, is that we should be aware that our instincts and appetites have been overwhelmingly formed by hundreds of thousands of critical, brain, critical mind bypassing associations and visions of the good life for decades. But this is only to relativize our aesthetic instincts here. It's just to say, hey, maybe we're a little abnormal. But that, that doesn't refute those instincts directly. You know, you know, so you know, one might say, you know, even if I'm right, that this would be an unrealistic way to view human sexuality in the past, isn't the more free love approach that we see these days a good thing, especially in a world of, that emphasizes mutual consent, even if the possibility of making that work out is an achievement of technology, how can that be a bad thing? You know, we've tricked the system. We can have our cake and eat it too now, you know? <laughs> Uh, and, and despite all of our categorized, of course not, that's not the way to do, the, the, the float through our head when we find ourselves asking questions like this, we can all admit that maybe the thought has floated across our wandering nerves on occasion. <laughs> and this is especially challenging. These sorts of thoughts are especially challenging if you're in relationships with people or you know people who've lived a life uh, of non-traditional sexuality and you seem very happy with it. You know, what does the Christian do with the empirical reality of that guy who, or, or, or even that, that woman who you speak of that area of like sowing their wild oats, uh, and they think of themselves as the better for it, or, or who have non-traditional sexual relationships, and, the, and they seem fulfilled in them. That's just what, how they come off to you. You know, what do we do with that? What we're really struggling with, I think, is wondering whether God's requirements of us, God's way is, after all, a kind of letdown. You know, what we're wondering is, is God actually good? It, 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 or is his way ultimately disappointing, requiring us to live a disappointing life? And this can be an especially poignant struggle if one feels disappointed about something in their own love life or their own marriage. Uh, you know, it looks like uh, all the unbelievers over there are living it up and here I am stuck trying not to argue, you know, with the spouse that God has told me to love and stick with. <laughs> well, you know, there's much to say about all of this and, and, and in two directions.
If we're bringing our critical mind into conversation with our aesthetic sensibilities, that is those things that feel attractive to us, uh, then we can go in one or two directions. On the one hand, we can honestly ask ourselves, is there something farcical or atrophied about our longings? For instance, is our, is our vision of the good actually correspondent to how real people operate? operate. It, it, it's not accidental, for instance, here's just one observation, that a lot of the kind of consequenceless sex that we see and a lot of the non-traditional sexual habits that we witness exist among upper middle class circles, especially, where you can sort of buy away the consequences of the real world. Among the lower classes, dependent on fairly traditional types of human interdependence and cooperation, while there's obviously still plenty of promiscuity in those parts, <laughs> The, the free love vision of the sexual revolution, nevertheless, is not ultimately plausible. Uh, moreover, it's also worth noting that most of this sort of behavior also we observe kind of declines with age, right? That is to say the, the sowing of the wild oats makes sense to somebody when they're in their 20s and it makes a little bit less sense when you're in your 30s and you have to cope with the fact that you have some desire to leave a link to the future in, in, in some way. And there's much more that could be said in this direction that would likely render the, the, the kind of imagined sexual utopias of the future totally unsustainable. We see this, for instance, in the already changing attitude towards pornography. You know, it's, it's increasingly popular, even in secular sources, uh, that it's very clear that there's actually a public health epidemic that is so comprehensive that we've actually forgotten what it is like to be and feel normally because of what pornography is doing to the brains of most people, or at least many people in Western civilization. And so part of the solution to our instincts in this area, when we detect this tension between what God has said and what, what seems, you know, aesthetically pleasing to us, part of the solution is to become suspicious and nascently scandalized at what is perhaps a much deeper malformation in ourselves than we might want to admit. But there's another direction we can go as well. Is it possible that part of our problem isn't that we have too big of a view of love and sexuality, but rather that we have too small of one? That is to say, if this lifestyle actually looks bigger and more great than this one over here, is it actually that our imagining of this over here is, is, is totally distorted? So as you know, as Lewis often argued, for instance, when human rationality orders what is animal in us, we do not become less, but more ourselves. So, so uh, you know, for instance, for a human to eat food is not merely to find food and start eating it. Human rationality makes this weird thing called cooking possible. We add spices to our food. We enjoy the experience, even though there's an animal reason for it. What is, what is natural uh, to most animals is in the hands of humans an art. It's turned into an art. And so similarly in human sexuality, it, it is precisely human for our animality to be ordered and beautified and adorned in a particular way. And it's crucial to note that the difference between animal and human mating uh, is that humans make love to persons. Uh, Roger Scritton's philosophical treatise on sexual desire is especially clear about this. What we're after in our craving is never just a physical experience, even somebody that thinks that's all they're about. But if, if they really think about it, if you reflect on it, what you're really after is an experience 
with a particular person. Uh, and the animal kingdom is not as discriminant in this way. It's not about that particular person. And, and the great tragedy of modern sexuality then is, is that this dimension of human longing, while it is present nascently simply because it's an ineradicable feature of human sexuality, it's nevertheless kind of reduced in our talking to ourselves about what's really going on in our sexuality. It's reduced in that in that sort of sort of self-reflexive discursive aspect of our sexuality. It's reduced to an epiphenomenon of what's just really biological in us. You know, so I have these feelings about this person, but they're really just the scaffolding to get me to go do the deed, and it's not more significant than yet than that. Um, but this is just a hand wave away the possibility that what's really happening is that the specifically human and beautifying element of sexuality is actually forfeited and given up for the sake of what, by comparison at least, amounts to just a pile of cheap thrills. And so, so the great tragedy of our moral vision is that we are sometimes too numb to imagine what marriage might actually mean. And to achieve a meaningful marriage, to be very plain, to be very frank, is no simple affair. Uh, you know, the, the intertwining of two persons that God has designed in a unity is a lifelong process. And in that process, it's not infrequent, especially after the fall, it's not infrequent that we experience frustration and limitation and disappointment even. And especially in those moments, in our state of plateaued affection, if you will, it's easy to feel a fear that one is, after all, you know, sort of missing something. Uh, and so apathy sets in, pornography becomes more tempting because it's a much easier solution to one's longings than the exposing and vulnerable work of moving deeper into the marriage. Uh, and yet this is precisely where we're so distorted. You know, we're, we're designed to be in a longing relationship with a whole world of another person. And for all the dimensions of that full person interrelationship, that fusion of worlds to grow into a greater, greater and more fruitful union over time. And let's not deny that we're both kind of attracted to that vision of things, but also we're afraid of it. The difficulty of such a union is that it's actually quite fearful to be so known, to be so exposed. And yet when, when you have the embrace of the lover, you know, despite one's flaws and sins, you really begin to experience what it is, what is truly possible within the love of a marriage, where human sexuality is, is fulfilled precisely by taking on a calculus and register of meaning that is so much more than simply, simply its animal register. Uh, and all of this is just to say that, that, if, that if it is marriage that seems disappointing to you, it's crucial to ask yourself if it is rather you who have implicitly or explicitly refused the kind of union with your spouse that produces the kinds of goods in marriage that really make that other vision seem cheap by comparison. If I can just speak for myself for just a bit, you know, I was married at a, at a younger age, typical homeschool kid. I was 21. My wife was 22. <laughs> She's older. Uh, and, our, and our first few years were very difficult. And I, I remember feeling a bit trapped and I remember feeling like we would never be able to have the kind of intimacy and sense of common project, you know, that I craved naturally. And a lot of things in God's mercy changed that. Now, I won't, I won't talk about or name them all here. But one thing that struck me, that has struck me, one thing that struck me profoundly since then 
is how much marriage requires a kind of deeper than physical exposure, and of which physical exposure is a sort of metaphor. To, to continue in the project of marriage involves, as, as my friend Jim would put it, a movement, a perpetual movement toward a person that never really stops in the marriage. And, and we're, let's just be honest here, we as, as modern people are so bad at this. Everything is a is a machine, it's a computation, it's a screen, it's an instrument, not a person. But to be to be married to a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve is to be married to a regal person, someone to whom God has given gifts and someone who self-sabotages those gifts in certain ways. And the task of a spouse is that awesome task uh, of, of aiding what belongs to kings and queens in one another, extracting and calling that forth from one another while being truthful and gracious toward what remains irreducibly tragic in each human heart. Uh, and put it this way, I think when we think of it that way, you know, I think we all feel something that there's there's something attractive about that vision, you know, or, or we wobble a little bit. And I'm betting that once you've entered into this headspace, it makes a bit more sense to think about such a project as exclusive, a profound and unique relational investment that could only really exist in its in its kind of ideal form between two persons. Um, you know, one interesting conundrum here is that, you know, we conservative folks are the, are the ones who like to pride ourselves in valuing, you know, good labor and hard work and such, and we do. <laughs> but in our actual lives, and especially in our relationships, we, we sometimes reveal ourselves still to be children of the age, tacitly imagining that good things actually at the end of the day are supposed to be easy. And one of the most healing things we can come to realize as modern persons is that a, a thing being hard <laughs> is actually a good and wholesome and life-giving thing in principle. So, you know, don't misunderstand me here. I don't mean that we ever move apart from grace or that we have any strength in ourselves. But these, but 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 the fact that we need grace and that it, and we don't have strength in ourselves are precisely significant because reality and life and relationships and being a church member and being a part of a nation and child rearing and marriage are all hard. They're hard things, and this is partially, of course, because of the fall. You know, that's the obvious explanation for why there's kind of a sort of resistant, frustrating, hard labor end of things. But there is an element of it that is simply being a creature. You know, so for instance, like this is you know, a weird example, but if Adam wanted to, if Adam wanted to strum a guitar before the fall, he wouldn't immediately presumably turn into Eric Clapton. You know, he would have to practice. <laughs> and that's just because God is ordained reality and made mankind as the sort of entity that learns, that grows through time and increases in wisdom and vantage point, as we've pointed out in, in previous videos. And so making certain things hard in a certain way is a way of in, inviting an adventure of soul. You have to kind of move towards something. You have to step out and go through a whole process to achieve a certain kind of good. And to seek to, to possess something that is hard, interestingly, uh, uh, is, is kind of an image of, of following after God, who is both closer to us than we are to ourselves, but who is also more removed in a certain sort of way. He's the most different thing than us in another, after another fashion. 
And so it's actually kind of an interesting metaphor to think of things that are hard, right? Hard things have a greater gravity, a kind of inflexibility around which you have to navigate. And, and God, as Lewis notes, uh, God, Lewis uses this metaphor all the time. God is sort of the most concrete thing, you know, possessed of the greatest gravity as all things are from and toward him. And so in the classic Christian tradition, what we should imagine is that all of this, uh, what we should imagine in all of this is that God has given humankind a, a great gift when he gives us hard things, a sort of adventure of the soul where the beauty of God is manifested in a deeper way as we know him by moving into the world that he's made, by going through a process. And as we grow in our knowledge of God and of the world and of man through that process, like the Grinch, <laughs> our heart and our vantage point grow three sizes that day or however you want to put that <laughs> and the destiny of man of course is just that beatific vision right which is that final grasp of god's beauty to the extent that we as creatures can possess it so what am i getting at here there are traces of this whole process in the symbols of life. And, and there's none like marriage and family, in fact, that are a good trace of this process. So here God puts us into contact with concrete persons, persons whom one influences in some way, but who are also, whether wife or children, they're just entirely themselves. And to really grasp them deeply is actually very difficult. It takes curiosity. It takes a movement of soul toward them, an engagement with them that is the, the site of mutual, mutual cultivation. And this is you know, mostly done through you know, doing tasks and sharing experiences together, forming common projects. And, but it does usually take on some discursive and explicit form. And what is hard before creation, that is, you know, you know, navigating around these solid individuals, if you will, what's hard before creation is exponentially more difficult after the fall, where our instincts and our formative experiences, you know, shove us in pathological directions. But one of the one of the real joys of Christian marriage, one of the, the, the true beauties of marriage after the fall when redeemed by Christ is that it can become such an icon of God's redemption. When two persons forgive one another's sins uh, and summon what is regal and distinctively themselves out of one another, not only does the soul possess an image of God's beauty refracted through the lens of creation, but an image of God's beauty refracted through the lens of redemption. So, you, you know, you, sin tried to ruin the picture of marriage, you might say, but God exploited it to give man the widest conceivable vantage point for a creature to know and enjoy God's greater beauty. So if we already, already had an adventure of soul to go through take as creatures, the fall placed us sort of even further away. Uh, and the gospel, of course, is not that we travail all that ground to find God, but rather that he travailed all of that ground to find us and then brings us back through that journey with him. Uh, as we in, in, in that journey, we witness, you know, he's already accomplished it, right? You know, he's already finished the job. <laughs> but as he sort of brings us back through the, the, tr the, the ground he's covered, uh, we witness a wider canvas, a more profound color palette, as it were, upon which God displays his beauty. And you see an image of this in marriage when the, when the relational exposure of marriage involves the exposure of one's own sin. And so in marriage, we are seen for the sinners that we are. 
but we can be sinners in a marriage who are also loved and fought for. And I think when we see this, we see that our ordinary vision is just too cynical, that there's something deadened in our cravings for an alternative, something in, something of the child, the, ch the nursery hopes that have been suppressed and some compromised vision of our hopes rendered, you know, sort of the best that we can wish for. I'd wager that if we, if we really grasped what can really happen in a marriage, even an ordinary marriage, we'd regard it with much greater reverence. And I think this is, there's part of this that does make our heart, most people's heart, I would think, flutter a bit. You know, some, some natural law nerves that might be still kicking after all, despite all this cultural pedagogy. <laughs> and having said all that, you know, Let's rethink just for a moment again about the alternative. You know, take that free love approach to things. We can kind of project an aura on that way of doing things and think of it as some utopian head trip. But, you know, what after all is the good life in that vision? Is sexuality and intimacy reduced to a series of sort of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours transactions? Uh, this is the sexuality of the marketplace. And we need to ask ourselves honestly, what? What could never be achieved by persons whose vision of the good only looked like that? What kinds of attachments would ordinarily be missed? What's the cost of making that the vision of the good? And part of our tension is, again, that our imagination has been so colonized by an incredible amount of messages and that include our framing of marriage itself. And those messages include the framing of marriages, you know, that, that sort of site where we get to feel stuck and we're unfree. And no, this isn't, this isn't just, this is also true, I should say, this, that, that, that tension is also true of conservatives with the right view of marriage, with all the right doctrines about it. Uh, but, but even if we have all those right thoughts about it, we're frail as the next guy. And, the, and those tensions and those feelings and those frustrations are just as common on this side of the fence as on the other. But to, but to internalize, I think, the beauty of the Christian vision of sexuality, when, when, when we see it in a, in a sort of bigger frame, it seems to me is not to, we're, we're not gonna lose something if we do that, we're gonna gain something. We're allowing God in that moment to sort of topple our idols, not at the expense of what's beautiful, but at the expense of our own comparative ugliness, our, our settlement for actually something that's less beautiful than what he's offering us. Of course, still, it might be objected. How is this of any use for those who are in such a broken relationship that such a thing seems hopeless? And, you know, what about those in no, in no relationship at all? You know, are they to die to something so fundamentally human in themselves? Uh, uh, Carl Truman's recent book, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, shows how incredibly recent some of these questions are. That is that, that our sexuality in, in this era is so bound up with being human that we can hardly imagine a fulfilled life that was not able to achieve it. And so, uh, you know, he uses the example of, a, you know, we, we know automatically that a movie titled The 40-Year-Old Virgin must be a comedy because how could you be a normal and fulfilled 40-year-old 40, 40 who is still a virgin? But in any case, there's no question that there remains the possibility of things like a legitimate divorce or, or heartbreak of real disappointment in the area of marriage and sexuality for a whole number of reasons. And indeed, even, even without a, a fulfilling marriage, or, or so, so, so even, even with a fulfilling marriage, 
the human capacity to, to lust, to demand more than God has general, generously given you is absolutely legion. As in all things, there are limitations. Marriage and sexuality are not God. They make terrible gods. <laughs> They're good treasures to be enjoyed. They're ministries of God to us, good things he's given to us that help us in holiness and all sorts of things. But the human capacity to desire as its ultimate, uh, excuse me, the, uh, but the human capacity to desire has as its ultimate object, God himself, as I, as I mentioned in the last video. And so in a fallen world, there's always going to be the possibility of disappointment. And sometimes God does in fact call us to experience unfulfilled longings, even if he stands at the back of that available to us as ultimately fulfilling and not disappointing himself. And this can be very difficult. It can be very difficult to experience unfulfilled longings, and especially when our longings hold out to us something that seems more beautiful in some moments than the path to which God is calling us. And again, it might be that you're misunderstanding God, projecting some weird thing on marriage, for instance. But but a lot of the time, our problem is that our is that our sense of what is desirable is so small. And so when we pull back and we see how God's way actually helps humans live together in harmony and goodness, we realize that what we're actually after through those surrogates is a kind of form of death you know, a divinization of one dimension of man, sort of that animal sexual dimension of man through the suffocation of another, which needs that sexuality to be linked to something else for it to really be what God has intended to sort of juice out the fruits of it that are really possible. And it's precisely that I think that helps us, you know, when we, when we move toward one another within a marriage, we're achieving something that really can't be parodied. And when we parody it outside of that marriage, when we offer an image of it that isn't the real thing, we're ultimately instrumentalizing the gift. We're kind of bastardizing the gift to just be for ourselves, but we're also stealing our neighbor's attention, whether the person we're, we're, we're committing these acts with or others, we're stealing our neighbor's attention from what is actually most suitable to their dignity as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We're really helping each other in those moments to die uh, when we use these things that God has given us in a way that he has not intended. And there's still the fear, of course, that the way of Christ costs us an authentic human existence. But this is a signal that there's something in us that's something that's still being missed. Nobody who takes up the way of Christ need fear that they will ultimately lose themselves. They will lose a certain performance, perhaps. There's something that's like death <laughs> that, that is involved in moving after the way of Christ. But you also gain something more. And what you gain is precisely yourself redeemed. Again, you know, Lewis, you become more yourself when you're taken up by Christ. And, and so to move toward the concrete one, you know, the solid one, <laughs> God himself, and that image of Christ, the man, you know, is to become more solid ourselves, to become more integrated, more concrete persons, more ourselves. And when we receive the relationship of sexuality to all the gifts that God has offered us and all that it means to be a human and all that it means to be a civilization and its cosmic significance, we can become possessed of a vision of the goodness of God's gift that is so intrinsically compelling that we're less motivated 
albeit sometimes tempted, <laughs> to wish that it were otherwise. And so the most, the most authentic sexuality for human beings is a sexuality that's ultimately ruled by the love of God. Uh, and this is the foundation for the chastity that we're all called to in our lives, whether uh, the limitations of marriage or outside of marriage. And there's so much more that might be said. One last thing I think that's important to say is that there's, there's a kind of unique loudness to human drives toward love and sexuality. And this can make the conscience of those who are sinning in this area very difficult to negotiate with because the, the highs are so high. It's especially difficult when caught in this kind of sin to feel as though the way of Christ could possibly be more beautiful than the way of sin. And this is partially why the Bible kind of shouts at sexual sin. You know, we need it to be loud because these drives are loud. And many saints have found themselves in these moments kind of cynical of God's requirement of them uh, when, they're, when they're tempted towards sexual sin. And it's crucial to, to recognize as part of one's sort of larger program of repentance that it is wiser to trust God than one's own feelings in those kinds of moments. Again, it's crucial to recognize when we find those feelings in ourselves and so that we can, we can move toward being more integrated persons who love God and obey out of delight, spontaneously out of delight. Still, it's not realistic on this side of glory to expect that the whole Christian journey is going to exist without there being moments where, where we have to do with what God requires, even though Maybe there's something in us that feels like it's a little bit of a bummer. <laughs> that's, that's an ordinary part of growing in Christ. You'll be fine. You want to move outside of that headspace, but nevertheless, it might be a, a, a moment, a stage where you, have to, where you have to struggle through feeling that. Uh, and God will meet you there. So the, the very short point of this video is that if, if you find that the way of Christ seems ugly and the way of man seems more beautiful, you're both very likely projecting something on the way of Christ, maybe as reinforced by kind of distorted teaching. You're very likely projecting there and also kind of flattering the way of man as though it's actually more elegant than it really is when we, you know, you know, pull this thread and pull these threads apart. And I further stated that we especially are liable to malformation in this era, in this area in our age. And yet I'd also claim that classical sexual morality actually still can be presented in a way that does strike most persons as kind of instinctively attractive, even if also as fearfully vulnerable and exposing in other ways. And all of that, once again, just to provide an example, sort of bringing us full circle here, of what it might look like to work through this kind of tension relative to learning to believe, to believe in and trust God. What we're trying to do is look at things that kind of get in the way of and prevent belief as we approach the intellectual arguments. And so in the next video, then I'll look at how one might work through an aspect of the God question that is rooted in a sense of violated justice. That is, how can I worship a God, you know, who would send people to hell or tell the Israelites to kill those dudes or, you know, something like that. Uh, uh, and that'll complete, once we talk about that in the next video, that'll complete our discussion of that second layer of the God question, you know, where we're talking about what, what in what way do, do, do certain things in life seem to violate our sense of what's good and beautiful and, and just. And then we'll be in a place, as I've said before, I think when we, when we kind of work through that a bit, we'll then be in a place to approach the classical intellectual arguments from a more secure footing and maybe a calmer frame of mind to think about them. 
Uh, so for now, I'm glad you've joined me again this time. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you again in short order. Farewell.